You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The people that I met um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn um, either by him or because of him were actually very useful. We'll reflect on what we've learned this week, which can't be less than Prince Andrew appears to have done in his entire life. We'll recap an, well, an other eventful and bizarre week in American politics. We'll have a leaf through the new edition of Monocle magazine on a newsstand near you now about, and... England are terrible everything. Well, football... England's terrible hey, everything. England, mate, we won two World Wars, one World Cup. It's great. Can't fault them, can you? When the Germans were sleeping, smoking fags in French bars, we was out there, mate. No matter what the weather is, we was out there. We was there. We was doing it, no problem. So do you think the English are not very good at things, then? What, are you Scottish or what? Back in 1999, the photographer Martin Parr asked some English people what being English was. A similar enterprise has been performed with a rather larger sample in Australia. With a staff drawn from all corners of the world here at Monocle 24, it seems outright churlish not to take this opportunity to reflect on our national identities and what, if anything, they mean to us. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. This week's proceedings in the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump's recent outreaches to Ukraine have prompted an amount of speculation that the president's recollection of events may be other than altogether reliable, which is to say that a succession of witnesses, at least one of them, US Ambassador to the EU Gordon Sondland, an actual Trump appointee, have testified under oath that Trump absolutely did attempt to leverage American foreign policy in the interests of his own re-election, which at best looks a bit high crimes and misdemeanors To reflect on a week remarkable even by the standards of the circus which has occupied the White House since January 2017, I'm joined from our Los Angeles bureau by Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello. Um, Carlotta, briefly, if, if it's possible to sum this up briefly, what did we learn from the hearings this week? was such a packed week that it's actually quite impossible to try to summarize it, but I will try to do my best. <laughs> so uh, meaning, uh, going with Sondland's testimony, now this was um, on the, um, on Wednesday, um, I think the most essential thing that we learned was first that absolutely there was a quid pro quo and uh, that everyone was in the loop. Now, this was one of the quotes that has been picked up the most from his uh, testimony um, that basically just rejects this idea that senior figures uh, in the administration or that were involved in this Ukraine matter um, weren't fully aware of the president's demand demands and this was some sort of rogue diplomacy. Someone just cleared that for everyone um, and implicated Vice President Mike Pence and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo too. 
Um, I, I don't want to go over long on the impeachment inquiry because I, I think we have to ration ourselves with this because who knows what the following weeks are going to bring. But just in terms of the way this is playing in American media, it's been pointed out many times before that there are several now self-contained parallel media universes in America. Do you get the sense that this week has been damning enough that it's even starting to get very, very difficult for the pro-Trump media to spin their way out of this? Uh, look, uh, when you have Republican witnesses that do not uh, that do not corroborate the statement that they're going for, uh, it becomes difficult to then to try to spin this around. Obviously, I'm talking to you from you know Los Angeles. It's the same thing um, as with cities like New York, where you kind of have this bubble uh, that you live in, and you kind of forget that not everyone is following these hearings. But it has been quite refreshing to actually see people, you know, picking up the Los Angeles Times and. Reading reading the latest, uh, walking like I, I was on the metro the other day on Wednesday and people were actually following it live on their phones. Um, and, you know, this is democracy at play. And I think people are starting to finally understand that they need to be paying attention. And while with the Mueller report, it just seemed so overly complicated that I, I guess the majority of the population did not realize um, the how severe and serious the that report was. It's much easier for them to grapple with what's being discussed here in these hearings and the idea of you know bribery and a quid pro quo. Uh, there are of course uh, two parties, well two main parties at play in American politics. The other one of which the Democratic Party is trying to figure out who it plans to run against uh, Donald Trump next year. Uh, this week it had what feels like the, I don't know, about the 63rd debate among the several hundred people who are still running for the position. Uh, is anybody beginning to emerge from the field yet? Let me fact check on those numbers. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 in the ballpark. It's near enough. It's it's a lot. Exactly. It's a lot of people. Exactly. It it is a lot. And honestly, following uh, what is now five debates in a row, um, it has often become a bit repetitive. But I must admit that this last one, um, actually, we start to see, you know, who are um, who are the ones leading uh, the, or going ahead to the, the nomination on a good, you know standing point. Uh, I guess ahead of the debate um, that happened this week, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the Mayor Pete uh, from South Bend, Indiana, uh, was the one that entered uh, that night with the biggest momentum behind him. He had just soared nine points um, in the polls that had come out earlier that week uh, ahead of the caucus in Iowa. Um, and, you know, he is having a moment and he definitely did the most he could to cherish that on stage. Um uh, of course, uh, we need to remember that uh, Iowa is the first state to vote in the primary. So this is a poll that really matters. And where we have seen in the past, you know, um, in the very first debate that Joe Biden, for example, was at the center of everyone's um, uh, aim. And then in the second and third debate that shifted to Elizabeth Warren. Um, on this week's debate, it was definitely Pete Buttigieg. And when you have nine other candidates focusing most of their attacks on you, I mean, it means you're doing something right and you're certainly being perceived as a threat. Uh, we should also talk about a California politics story, given how that's where you are. And I, I like this one because this is a display of just genuinely outstanding pettiness uh, by Governor Gavin Newsom. Oh, yes. So the governor, Gavin Newsom, announced on Friday last week uh, that he um, effective immediately and uh, then 
for the broader state uh, from January onwards, uh, every single auto uh, maker, uh, car company that sided with Trump on the climate policy, um, the state of California won't simply purchase any, uh, any more uh, vehicles from there. Now, what this means uh, in practice uh, is that so you might remember a couple of months ago that the White House tried to um, uh, said that it was going to revoke uh, California's um, uh, autonomy to set its own um, regulations when it comes to emissions. You know, California um, is pursuing a very clear uh, Green New Deal approach. This, uh, the city of Los Angeles has its own Green New Deal. Uh, so this is a state that if, even if at a federal level, um, the country has pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, this is a state that is very committed to that. Um, so what this means is that um, car companies, including uh, General Motors, Fiat Chrysler, Toyota, uh, all of whom which have backed uh, Trump's administration's uh, decision to strip California's authority, are now excluded uh, from the state's um, uh, go-to uh, car manufacturers whenever they need uh, to uh, buy uh, any new vehicles. Uh, we need to say that BMW, Ford and Honda all have reached a deal with the state of California uh, and because they also publicly supported um, California's uh, authority um, authority here. Uh, finally, and just quickly, one other political development, or which could yet be a political development, we don't know if it's going to be a thing or not, is that as of today, uh, it will no longer be possible to uh, broadcast political advertising on Twitter. Do candidates, have candidates said anything about whether they think this is actually going to make any difference to them? Uh, well, not specifically if it's going to make a difference to their campaign. It is interesting that this is happening um, 74 days before the first uh, caucus in the nation in Iowa and how this is going to play broadly in 2020, um, we'll, we shall see. But, uh, for example, Cory Booker uh, was one of the candidates uh, on the Democratic primaries that uh, was pushing for uh, other companies to join uh, Twitter on this uh, on this ban. Um, and I know that Senator Elizabeth Warren has talked as well about this idea uh, about uh, data uh, sharing and micro-targeting, which has been at the core uh, of the complaints that Facebook, for instance, is facing. Now, you did say that the uh, the ban goes into effect today. And for me, what what we need to remember here is what is this going to mean in the long term? Because in practice, it means that both adverts that are related related to elections will be banned in which you know if you are um, advertising for a specific candidate or a specific party it's very straightforward but also there's this other category of political issues um, and this these are both at a global level but political issues is such a broad term um, anything can go under that it can be you know uh, uh, an advert for, for you to get support for a petition I don't know for gun control or to get a policy heard on the house floor etc so what defines political issues is what Twitter has to fine-tune in the next couple of weeks and as this ban rolls out and I'm sure advertisers will start complaining <laughs> will understand a bit more what this means um, but one thing in my opinion that might mean good news from this is if traditional if um, political advertisers can no longer advertise online maybe we'll see a resurgence of political ads in traditional media in print in tv uh, and in radio and if that's the case maybe this is not a bad thing after all carlotta rabello in our los angeles bureau thank you for joining us
Time now on Monocle's House View for me to reflect on a questionably beneficial week in the human experiment. We learned this week that the United Kingdom's politicians are still taking to the idea of the leaders' election debate like goats to rollerblading. Prime Minister Boris Johnson and opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn faced off in a debate apparently structured to find yet further depths to the already abysmal discourse. I'm absolutely clear about that. Yes, because it's been so brutal on the lives of so many people. And this still wasn't quite the most baffling television spectacle to which we were treated this week. Prince Andrew, now a mercifully distant eighth in line to the throne, gave a bizarre interview addressing his friendship with unlamented sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Do you regret the whole friendship with Epstein? Um, uh, now, uh, still not. And the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met... Um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn, um, either by him or because of him, were actually very useful. From which we learned that, apparently, being shot at by Argentinians can seize up your sweat glands for, like, decades, that there is no accommodation available in New York City but the mansions of convicts, that taking four days, a couple of agreeable dinner parties and a nice walk in the park to end a not-really-all-that-close friendship is completely explicable behaviour, and that, at any rate, a man who dines at Pizza Express in Woking at least once in his life must surely be above reproach. We also learned that there is a world in which being stood down from the excruciating tedium of the public duties of a member of the British royal family is regarded as some sort of punishment. Having shot himself in the foot, Andrew hopped into penitent exile. We also learned, although did not necessarily retire to our fainting couches as a consequence, that US President Donald Trump's recollection of particular events may not always be the most reliable guide to what actually happened. The US ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, a Trump appointee, got his memory back as regards Trump's attempts to pull a standover move on Ukraine. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes. This was former White House staffer Amy Pope speaking to us on Thursday's briefing. I think it's helpful to think about why you would have been reluctant to be straightforward in the first instance. This is a Republican who contributed a significant amount of money to President Trump's election in the first place. We learned, though Iran seems to have missed the memo, that launching missiles at Israel will always invite a brusque response. In Syria, dozens of targets associated with the Quds Force, foreign legion of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, were struck. We also learned via leaked intelligence cables of the extent to which Tehran's tentacles have reached into Baghdad. This was Azada Moaveni from the International Crisis Group speaking to us on Wednesday's Globalist. What they tell us about Iran's long-standing post-2003 efforts to influence Iraq to ensure that it doesn't descend into further sectarian violence, that, that essentially Iran pursues in Iraq a security and foreign policy set of objectives, I think it broadly conveys things that we already knew. It just fills it out with greater detail. 
What we didn't learn much of, however, was the protests reported to have occurred across Iran during the week, apparently sparked by a rise in petrol prices. In the time-honoured manner of regimes which totally have it all under control and aren't up to anything sinister, Iranian authorities switched off the internet. Here's Yasmin Abdul-Majid on Thursday's briefing. The reason why people are going out on the streets, a small spark is something to unite people around, right? It's it is it's something where you can say, okay, this specific thing has happened and we've got all these woes and we've got all these things we're really frustrated about, but this is one specific thing we can get people out around. And then it often becomes from that small thing about something much bigger. We learned that whatever worries may disturb the sleep of Russia, a fear of being perceived as petty and or vindictive and or very arguably somewhat thin-skinned, is not high among them. Russia returned the two gunboats and one tug it seized from the Ukrainian Navy a year ago, but first removed many of the fixtures and fittings. Russia might not get its deposit back. And Russia's football team refused to wear their new shirts in a European Championship qualifier against Belgium. Umbrage was taken at the fact that the red, blue and white stripes on the shirt sleeves are in reverse order to which they appear on Russia's flag. Team manager Stanislav Cherchesov gamely suggested that the stripes would be the right way around when players and fans lofted their arms in triumph, but they didn't get that many chances, being filled in for one by the Belgians. And to go back to where we came in, we learned something of the melancholy heroism of those candidates who, come election time, trudge footpaths, belabor doorbells and brandish leaflets in a cause they know to be hopeless. We heard from Luke Parker, who has twice run for the UK's Conservative Party in rock-solid London seats, a task next to which the capture of the Erymanthian boar, the slaughter of the nine-headed Lernaean hydra, the cleaning of King Orgeus's stables or any of the other ordeals of Heracles look like an afternoon's mildly energetic gardening. Really, one of the things they really like to see is that you've actually fought a seat before and that you've almost kind of been vetted by going through that process. You've shown you can campaign, you've shown you can get out there and uh, get your message across. So so for a lot of people who have aspirations to get into Parliament one day, it's a good route to, to do that. And with that hopeful pinning of the rosette of news to the lapel of fact, or whichever way round that metaphor works, if indeed it even does, but it has been a long week. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Now, the December slash January issue of Monocle magazine is at present on a newsstand near you, and if it isn't now, it will be shortly. I'm joined now by the editor, Andrew Tuck, for a look behind the cover. And there is a lot behind the cover that, even by the standards, am I right in thinking, of December-January issues, this is chunky. Uh, yeah, it's a, a nice kind of beefed up uh, end of year issue. And what's great is when you go to newsstands, you know, we know the challenges lots of magazines are facing. And Monocle's kind of come out fighting for the end of the year. We've got a huge amount of commercial support, 
And of course, we put a huge amount of effort into the editorial stories that we wanted to tell this month. But yeah, a great number of collaborators. And it's easy to forget when you're in a a magazine. Of course, it's about the reporting. And of course, it's about the stories that you get to tell and, and how you tell them. But the important thing to keep your staff employed and paid and keeping everything ticking along nicely is that brands and companies see value in working with you and see value in talking to the people who pick up Monocle and read it. So we're super proud that it's uh, it's ended the year in a really kind of great way with uh, so many kind of supporters coming up behind us. So on the cover of the magazine, there is a cheerful, cuddly-looking creature of indeterminate species. Um, what is the reason for it being there? Well, first of all, it's cute, and who doesn't, <laughs> who, who doesn't like uh, a cute on the cover? Now, what's interesting is, you know, well, you may know, first of all know that we have a character called Monochan who belongs to Monocle, uh, who's a, a very fluffy um, owl, who will be spotted at the upcoming uh, Christmas market. It'll be here. a spotted owl. It will be a spotted owl. Uh, a greater spotted owl will be here wandering around uh, um, Midori House. And this is because in Japan, most companies would have uh, an emblem, a character that kind of represents what they do. And it turns out that lots of you know, districts and areas within um, Japan have done the same. So uh, this is a character called uh, Kumamon. And he has been hugely successful, partly because the district that he comes from have done a very clever thing, which is they said, look, anybody who wants to have him can download images of him. They can they can use pictures of him. So he's kind of open access, as long as you don't abuse uh, the things that happen to him. But what's great is that they take it very, very seriously. So when we went to um, do the shoot, uh, it was made clear that at no point would we see anybody kind of popping out of uh, Kumumon because Kumumon is Kumumon. There is no person inside. Obviously you, not. You Perish are... the thought. Just as Monachan is obviously a, a unusually large bipedal owl. Yes, although I have seen certain colleagues. Uh, in the old days, we used to do the um, don't, 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 fair, fair in the summer as well. Don't let light in on the magic. No, no, you? I'm just going to say that I did see some rather sweaty colleagues in the summer. But <laughs> in winter, it's not so bad. So he's he's been you know, a huge, huge success. And um, and we wanted to chart his progress. So um, we sent uh, Kenji Hall to go and meet him. And I don't know, it's just great. And also, there's only one of them. So it's not that they made like... 50 of them to kind of go to lots of different places around Japan. So if... They haven't pulled some sort of Santa Claus racket here. No, not at all. There is just one. There's just one. And people camp out to meet him and are very, very excited when they meet him. Because we should uh, make it clear that there is a a Japan theme underpinning the new issue. Oh, no, it's just loony things around the world. That's the issue. (laughs) That's the theme. (laughs) No, no. the the issue is... um, about Japan. So for several reasons, obviously the, uh, the Olympics next year, we have an amazing team uh, in Japan who have been there since day one of Monocle. So we, it's one of those places we have a huge depth of knowledge about, always run by mm. the same woman, Fiona Wilson, uh, who you've spoken to many times here on Monocle 24. So she's kind of um, brought this amazing issue across the line. And then we also have in there the annual soft power survey, which... Uh, you got involved with it as well this year. Uh, I did. Uh, we did a special, I think, yet to be broadcast edition of the Foreign Desk, trying to figure out uh, which national leader has done the best for their country in terms of soft power. And I think the fruits of our deliberations are in there somewhere. Uh, and we also took a look at the soft power rankings of countries around the world, which 
It was a fun afternoon, actually. We, we took our panel to the meeting room upstairs. We, we even printed out the national flags and moved them all around the table and ate cake and shouted at each other. And I hear you lost in your attempt to get Boris Johnson elected as the, the winner of the most influential... I, I, made, I made absolutely no such attempt. I, I don't think he made out our top several hundred uh, of, of final candidates in terms of projecting a positive image of their nation abroad. Well, there's a nice crossover with the cover and with work that you did because you know, Kumon is, is a, a soft power uh, candidate. And also in the soft power uh, league, there is another soft power winner, which is the Panda, which is, uh, again, a, an expert piece of diplomacy by the Chinese who don't just let you have a Panda. They <laughs> hire them out. They're on short leases. And if you don't get on well with China, they'll bring the damn thing back home again. So they're used in a very interesting way. And if the panda has a baby while it's with you the baby belongs to china and we just did that event in chengdu a few weeks ago and while everyone else was being really honest and serious i snuck off to see the uh, the panda reserve so i got to see baby pandas how cute is that hey but did you actually get to see pandas move that's 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 the real bucket list item because well, i can remember standing in a queue at taronga park zoo in sydney years ago when australia was on the receiving end of panda diplomacy and I have to say, they were an underwhelming spectacle. We saw a couple of moves, but what was, <laughs> what was very exciting was there was a very large lady panda <laughs> who um, dived into like a pond and then kind of like lay back and kind of rubbed her tummy with the water and then got uh, a bit of a shake. And the guide that was with us said, you're very, very lucky because it's now winter and they only do that in the summer. So you, that's a very rare sighting. I think it probably happens every day and they just tell you that. But anyway, or, we, we, we or, were excited. Or it was an intern in a suit. Yes. Pa- Paige Reynolds, who works with us on the radio, I'm sure I saw a tear coming out of her eye when she saw the pandas. She was beyond excited. So soft power, it works, hey? It does. Andrew Tuck, thank you very much for joining us. That's the new edition of Monocle magazine, the December-January issue on a newsstand near you now. You're listening to Monocle's House View. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Earlier this week, Australia's national broadcaster, the ABC, showed Australia Talks, a programme examining the conclusions of a survey of the same name, in which the beliefs, behaviours and preoccupations of 54,000 Australians, that's most of us, were polled in order to provide a representative idea of where in 2019 the Australian character is at. This, of course, got us wondering about what we mean by national character and what, if any reflection, any of us see of ourselves in it. What a horrible sentence that was. Who writes this stuff? I am joined now by three characters representing the nations of Australia, Finland and Brazil, uh, re- respectively Monocles, Ben Rylan, Marco Sippi and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, ben, I will start with you because I, I think we need to establish that we Australians have the numbers uh, at this discourse before anybody starts thinking about bringing the convict jokes. I'm just just warning you both, uh, Marcus and Fernando. Um, Do you think national character is a thing, especially you speak from the experience of having filled the survey out? Yes, I did fill the survey out. It was quite personal, actually. It made me blush in a few moments. (laughs) Um, But 
I'm not sure that we truly understand what national character is. Uh, I think that having a look at some of the questions that were in the survey and some of the results that came forward, it did show that what we know about the national character of Australia or what we assume about it is really much more of a stereotype. And even though Australians might object to some of the stereotypes that we're subjected to internationally, we do curiously inflict a lot of that upon ourselves <laughs> as well. That that national larrikin sort of uh, character type really being such a thing that so many politicians, as you know, Andrew, go out of their way to mm. prove that they're just another larrikin like the, the rest the, of us. The lovable rogue figure. The lovable rogue. The, the, the kissing of the babies thing is really just the tip of the iceberg. You've got politicians in Australia that feel compelled to run out there and prove on the evening news, primetime television, that they can play football. And that <laughs> should be a reason that we should, we should vote them in. That sort of stuff is actually not so deeply entrenched in the character as a lot of people tend to think it is. Uh, there is, of course, a difference difference between character and stereotype, though stereotype is often a product, I think, of character. It becomes the kind of cartoonish version of the character which gets projected onto the world stage. Um, Marcus, because of the, the weird items you keep bringing to our program about Finland, uh, I think the idea that you have helped to project into the world of Finland uh, is perhaps questionable. People listening to our broadcast would assume that you are a nation of taciturn bucket hoarders mm. um, who carry their wives for sport and... Swedes also think that we all carry knives. And carry knives. Mm. I think you, Is that what the buckets are for, to keep your knives... <laughs> I, I, I lose I, track. I, I still don't know what the buckets are for exactly. But I think it's interesting that when you talk about national characters, quite often, you know, if you speak to people who are not from Finland, for example, they may describe Finns very differently from how we see ourselves and how we see our own characters. If you asked me what Finns really are like, I would say something along the lines of very sincere, a little bit naive, quite pragmatic and, and very honest... And quite silent as well. We don't enjoy communication that much. But but then if you speak to foreigners quite often because of, you know, different cultures and different ways of interaction, foreigners may just think that we're a bit funny and weird and difficult to connect with. Uh, Fernando, as, as a Brazilian who doesn't live in Brazil and therefore... And I think it is an interesting thing for anybody to do is live outside their country to get a sense, or one of the reasons to do it, is to get a sense of what the rest of the world actually thinks of your country. What sense do you get of what people think or assume Brazilians are going to be like? Well, I was very lucky when I moved to London, actually, because actually the Brazilian image around the world is quite positive, I think, because Brazilians, they're very a warm uh, nation, and we have so many problems. But no matter which country I am, if I'm in a cab, if I say I'm from Brazil, they usually smile, they usually mention the name of a footballer. Mm. Of course our image has been deteriorating uh, in the last few years, but it's still quite positive. So I remember when I was in Morocco, I mean, the guy was so fascinated that I was from Brazil. Even here in Europe, people say, oh, we're happy, we like to dance, football. I mean, we're occasionally fascistic, but, you know, <laughs> c'est la vie. <laughs> it's, uh, so there are, you can't have everything. But, but, but there's one thing, you know, when you talk about national stereotype, as a Brazilian abroad, I feel bad, let's say if I'm impolite with someone accidentally, I feel bad for my country. I'm like, oh my God, they will think I'm from Brazil, they will think I'm impolite. So I do care a lot about this, actually. I think it's amazing. I think it's really interesting how national stereotypes 
are born. I, I, I was actually reading an article quite recently that was trying to explain why us Finns, why do we always think that all Swedish men are homosexuals? And the reason for that is that Sweden was way forward in gay rights compared to Finland. So back in the 1980s, when, when Finland was rather backwards, and you would go to Stockholm and see all these gay guys with their rainbow flags in, on the streets of Stockholm, you kind of, I kind of understand where it comes from. Um, I I don't really know where to go with that information, Marcus. Uh, ben, just to, to square the circle, do you think though there is an element of the national stereotype that the people who are being stereotyped actually quite enjoy subscribing to? Because this is something I notice with our country, Australia, and I think there is still that image of the Australian as the kind of crocodile wrestling backwoodsman, the, the your basic crocodile Dundee figure, which Australians actually enjoy thinking of themselves as and projecting to the world despite the fact that we are an incredibly urbanized people uh, most of whom have never been within a state of a crocodile um, there, there can be something actually quite comforting about the stereotypes to the people who are being stereotyped yeah I think you're really onto something there Andrew and that really undercuts I think a lot about what we think we know about the Australian identity because yes on the one hand those stereotypes about Australians can be comforting to Australians but only for the people that can that can easily shape themselves into that sort of a stereotype if they if they need to so for for politicians such as the current prime minister Scott Morrison it's fairly easy for him to run out onto a field and kick a football and prove that he's just another daggy dad who wears ugly trainers <laughs> He doesn't have to try very hard. But if we assume that that's the stereotype that you need to fit in order to be prime minister, maybe that's part of the reason Julia Gillard had such a hard time in the press because, I mean, she's not going to go out onto a field and kick a football, is she? She, she did, doesn't. She, she did literally handball one to President Barack Obama in the Oval Office, an Australian rules ball. Oh, come on, Andrew, even I can handball. <laughs> <laughs> And Well, on that dubious assertion, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Thanks to Fernando, Marcus and Ben. Thanks also to our, it literally does say here, highly accomplished producer, Augustin Machalari, and our resolute journeyman of a studio manager, David Stevens. David, I'm pretty sure Augustin wrote this bit, if you've any complaints. And of course, to you, the listener, for listening to us. Monocle's House View returns tomorrow at 9am London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>